Section 30 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Book. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Section 30. Essay Supplementary to Preface. Continued. By William Wordsworth. Wonder is the natural product of ignorance, and as the soil was in such good condition at the time of the publication of the seasons, the crop was doubtless abundant. Neither individuals nor nations become corrupt all at once, nor are they enlightened in a moment. Thompson was an inspired poet, but he could not work miracles. In cases where the art of seeing had in some degree been learned, the teacher would further the proficiency of his pupils, but he could do little more, though so far does vanity assist men in acts of self-deception that many would often fancy they recognized a likeness when they knew nothing of the original. Having shown that much of what his biographer deemed genuine admiration must in fact have been blind wonderment, how is the rest to be accounted for? Thompson was fortunate in the very title of his poem, which seemed to bring it home to the prepared sympathies of every one. In the next place, notwithstanding his high powers, he writes a vicious style, and his false ornaments are exactly of that kind which would be most likely to strike the undiscerning. He likewise abounds with sentimental commonplaces, that, from the manner in which they were brought forward, bore an imposing air of novelty. In any well-used copy of the seasons, the book generally opens of itself with the Rhapsody on Love, or with one of the stories, perhaps Damon and Musidora. These also are prominent in our collections of extracts, and are the parts of his work which, after all, were probably most efficient in first recommending the author to general notice. Pope, repaying praises which he had received, and wishing to extol him to the highest, only styles him, quote, an elegant and philosophical poet. Nor are we able to collect any unquestionable proofs that the true characteristics of Thompson's genius as an imaginative poet were perceived, till the elder Wharton, almost forty years after the publication of the Seasons, pointed them out by a note in his essay on the life and writings of Pope. Footnote. Since these observations upon Thompson were written, I have perused the second edition of his Seasons, and find that even that does not contain the most striking passages which Wharton points out for admiration. These, with other improvements throughout the whole work, must have been added at a later period. End footnote. In the Castle of Indolence, of which Gray speaks so coldly, these characteristics were almost as conspicuously displayed, and in verse more harmonious and diction more pure. Yet that fine poem was neglected on its appearance, and is at this day the delight only of a few. When Thompson died, Collins breathed forth his regrets in an elegiac poem, in which he pronounces a poetical curse upon him who should regard with insensibility the place where the poet's remains were deposited. The poems of the mourner himself have now passed through innumerable editions, and are universally known. But if, when Collins died, the same kind of imprecation had been pronounced by a surviving admirer, small is the number whom it would not have comprehended. 
the notice which his poems attained during his lifetime was so small and of course the sale so insignificant that not long before his death he deemed it right to repay to the bookseller the sum which he had advanced for them and threw the addition into the fire next in importance to the seasons of thompson though a considerable distance from that work in order of time come the relics of ancient english poetry collected new remodelled and in many instances if such a contradiction in terms may be used composed by the editor dr percy this work did not steal silently into the world as is evident from the number of legendary tales that appeared not long after its publication and had been modelled as the authors persuaded themselves after the old ballad the compilation was however ill-suited to the then existing state of city society and dr johnson mid the little senate to which he gave laws was not sparing in his exertions to make it an object of contempt the critic triumphed the legendary imitators were deservedly disregarded and as undeservedly their ill-imitated models sank in this country into temporary neglect while Berger and other able writers of Germany were translating or imitating these reliques, and composing, with the aid of inspiration thence derived, poems which are the delight of the German nation. Dr. Percy was so abashed by the ridicule flung upon his labors from the ignorance and insensibility of the persons with whom he lived, that, though while he was writing under a mask, he had not wanted resolution to follow his genius into the regions of true simplicity and genuine pathos, as is evidenced by the exquisite ballad of Sir Cowleen and many other pieces, yet when he appeared in his own person and character as a poetical writer, he adopted, as in the tale of The Hermit of Warkworth, a diction scarcely in any one of its features distinguishable from the vague the glossy and unfeeling language of his day i mention this remarkable fact with regret esteeming the genius of dr percy in this kind of writing superior to that of any other man by whom in modern times it has been cultivated that even Berger, to whom klopstock gave in my hearing a commendation which he denied to gotha and schiller pronouncing him to be a genuine poet and one of the few among the germans whose works would last had not the fine sensibility of percy might be shown from many passages in which he has deserted his original only to go astray for example now day was gone and night was come and all were fast asleep all save the lady emmeline who sat in her bower to weep and soon she heard her true love's voice low whispering at the wall awake awake my dear lady tis i thy true love call which is thus tricked out and dilated als nun die nacht geberg und tal vermunt in raben schatten und hochbirds lampen überall schon asken flimmertaten und alles tief entschlafen war doch nur das fräulein immer dar Wolfiberangst noch wachte und seinen Ritter dachte. Da hoch ein süßer Liebeston kam leise emporgeflogen. Ho, Trudchen, ho, da bin ich schon. Frisch auf, dich angezogen. But from humble ballads we must ascend to heroics. All hail, MacPherson! Hail to thee, sire of Ossian! 
the phantom was begotten by the snug embrace of an impudent highlander upon a cloud of tradition it travelled southward where it was greeted with acclamation and the thin consistence took its course through europe upon the breath of popular applause the editor of the reliques had indirectly preferred a claim to the praise of invention by not concealing that his supplementary labours were considerable how selfish his conduct contrasted with that of the disinterested gale who like lear gives his kingdom away and is content to become a pensioner upon his own issue for a beggarly pittance open this far-famed book i have done so at random and the beginning of the epic poem Tamora in eight books presents itself. Quote, the blue waves of Ulan roll in light, the green hills are covered with day, trees shake their dusky heads in the breeze, grey torrents pour their noisy streams, two green hills with aged oaks surround a narrow plain. The blue course of a stream is there, on its banks stood Carebear of Atha, his spear supports the king, the red eyes of his fear are sad. Cormac rises on his soul with all his ghastly wounds. Precious memorandums from the pocket-book of the blind Ossian. If it be unbecoming, as I acknowledge that for the most part it is, to speak disrespectfully of works that have enjoyed for a length of time a widely spread reputation, without at the same time producing irrefragable proofs of their unworthiness, let me be forgiven upon this occasion. Having had the good fortune to be born and reared in a mountainous country, from my very childhood I have felt the falsehood that pervades the volumes imposed upon the world under the name of Ossian. From what I saw with my own eyes, I knew that the imagery was spurious. In nature everything is distinct, yet nothing defined into absolute independent singleness. In Macpherson's work it is exactly in reverse. Everything, that is not stolen, is in this manner defined, insulated, dislocated, deadened, yet nothing distinct. It will always be so when words are substituted for things. To say that the characters never could exist, that the manners are impossible, and that a dream has more substance than the whole state of society as they are depicted, is doing nothing more than pronouncing a censure which Macpherson defied. Then, with the steps of Morven before his eyes, he could talk so familiarly of his car-born heroes, of Morven, which, if one may judge from its appearance at the distance of a few miles, contains scarcely an acre of ground sufficiently accommodating for a sledge to be trailed along its surface. Mr. Malcolm Lang has ably shown that the diction of this pretended translation is a motley assemblage from all quarters. But he is so fond of making out parallel passages as to call poor Macpherson to account for his ands and his buts and he has weakened his argument by conducting it as if he thought that every striking resemblance was a conscious plagiarism. It is enough that the coincidences are too remarkable for its being probable or possible that they could arise in different minds without communication between them. Now as the translators of the Bible and Shakespeare, Milton, and Pope could not be indebted to Macpherson, it follows that he must have owed his fine feathers to them unless we are prepared gravely to assert, with Madame de Stael, that many of the characteristic beauties of our most celebrated English poets are derived from the ancient Fingalian, 
in which case the modern translator would have been but giving back to Ossian his own. It is consistent that Lucian Bonaparte, who could censure Milton for having surrounded Satan in the infernal regions with courtly and regal splendour, should pronounce the modern Ossian to be the glory of Scotland, a country that has produced a Dunbar, a Buchanan, a Thompson, and a Burns. These opinions are of ill omen for the epic ambition of him who has given them to the world. Yet, much as those pretended treasures of antiquity have been admired, they have been wholly uninfluential upon the literature of the country. No succeeding writer appears to have caught from them a ray of inspiration. No author, in the least distinguished, has ventured formally to imitate them, except the boy Chatterton on their first appearance. He had perceived, from the successful trials which he himself had made in literary forgery, how few critics were able to distinguish between a real ancient metal and a counterfeit of modern manufacture, and he set himself to the work of filling a magazine with Saxon poems, counterpoints to those of Ossian, as like his as one of his misty stars is to another. This incapability to amalgamate with the literature of the island is, in my estimation, a decisive proof that the book is essentially unnatural nor should I require any other to demonstrate it to be a forgery, audacious as worthless. Contrast, in this respect, the effect of Macpherson's publication with the reliques of Percy, so unassuming, so modest in their pretensions. I have already stated how much Germany is indebted to this latter work, and for our own country its poetry has been absolutely redeemed by it. I do not think that there is an able writer in verse of the present day who would not be proud to acknowledge his obligations to the reliques. I know that it is so with my friends, and, for myself, I am happy in this occasion to make a public avowal of my own. Dr. Johnson, more fortunate in his contempt of the labours of Macpherson than those of his modest friend, was solicited not long after to furnish prefaces biographical and critical for the works of some of the most eminent English poets. The booksellers took upon themselves to make the collection. They referred probably to the most popular miscellanies, and unquestionably to their books of accounts, and decided upon the claim of authors to be admitted into a body of the most eminent from the familiarity of their names with the readers of that day, and by the prophets, which, from the sale of his works, each had brought and was bringing to the trade. The editor was allowed a limited exercise of discretion, and the authors whom he recommended are scarcely to be mentioned without a smile. We open the volume of Prefatory Lives, and to our astonishment the first name we find is that of Cowley. What is become of the morning star of English poetry? Where is the bright Elizabethan constellation? or, if names be more acceptable than images, where is the ever-to-be-honoured Chaucer, where is Spencer, where Sidney? And, lastly, where he, whose rights as a poet, contradistinguished from those which he is universally allowed to possess as a dramatist, we have vindicated, where Shakespeare? These, and a multitude of others not unworthy to be placed near them, their contemporaries and successors, we have not but in their stead we have 
could better be expected when precedence was to be settled by an abstract of reputation at any given period made as in this case before us ruscommon and stepney and phillips and walsh and smith and duke and king and spratt halifax granville sheffield congreve broom and other reputed magnates metrical writers utterly worthless and useless except for occasions like the present when their productions are referred to as evidence what a small quantity of brain is necessary to procure a considerable stock of admiration provided the aspirant will accommodate himself to the likings and fashions of his day as i do not mean to bring down this retrospect to our own times it may with propriety be closed at the era of this distinguished event from the literature of other ages and countries proofs equally cogent might have been adduced that the opinions announced in the former part of this essay are founded upon truth it was not an agreeable office nor a prudent undertaking to declare them but their importance seemed to render it a duty it may still be asked where lies the particular relation of what has been said to these volumes the question will be easily answered by the discerning reader who is old enough to remember the taste that prevailed when some of these poems were first published seventeen years ago who has also observed to what degree the poetry of this island has since that period been coloured by them and who is further aware of the unremitting hostility with which upon some principle or other they have each and all been opposed a sketch of my own notion of the constitution of fame has been given and as far as concerns myself i have cause to be satisfied the love the admiration the indifference the slight the aversion and even the contempt with which these poems have been received knowing as i do the source within my own mind from which they have proceeded and the labour and pains which when labour and pains appeared needful have been bestowed upon them must all if i think consistently be received as pledges and tokens bearing the same general impression though widely different in value they are all proofs that for the present time i have not laboured in vain and afford assurances more or less authentic that the products of my industry will endure if there be one conclusion more forcibly pressed upon us than another by the review which has been given of the fortunes and fate of poetical works it is this that every author as far as he is great and at the same time original has had the task of creating the taste by which he is to be enjoyed so has it been so will it continue to be this remark was long since made to me by the philosophical friend for the separation of whose poems from my own i have previously expressed my regret the predecessors of an original genius of a high order will have smoothed the way for all that he has in common with them and much will he have in common but for what is peculiarly his own he will be called upon to clear and often to shape his own road he will be in the condition of hannibal among the alps and where lies the real difficulty of creating that taste by which a truly original poet is to be relished is it in breaking the bonds of custom in overcoming the prejudices of false refinement and displacing the aversions of inexperience or if he labour for an object which here and elsewhere i have proposed to myself 
does it consist in divesting the reader of the pride that induces him to dwell upon those points wherein men differ from each other to the exclusion of those in which all men are alike or the same and in making him ashamed of the vanity that renders him insensible of the appropriate excellence which civil arrangements less unjust than might appear and nature illimitable in her bounty had conferred on men who may stand below him in the scale of society finally does it lie in establishing that dominion over the spirits of readers by which they are to be humbled and humanized in order that they may be purified and exalted if these ends are to be attained by the mere communication of knowledge it does not lie here taste i would remind the reader like imagination is a word which has been forced to extend its services far beyond the point to which philosophy would have confined them it is a metaphor taken from a passive sense of the human body and transferred to things which are in their essence not passive to intellectual acts and operations the word imagination has been overstrained from impulses honourable to mankind to meet the demands of the faculty which is perhaps the noblest of our nature in the instance of taste the process has been reversed and from the prevalence of dispositions at once injurious and discreditable being no other than that selfishness which is the child of apathy which as nations decline in productive and creative power makes them value themselves upon a presumed refinement of judging poverty of language is the primary cause of the use which we make of the word imagination but the word taste has been stretched to the sense which it bears in modern europe by habits of self-conceit inducing that inversion in the order of things whereby a passive faculty is made paramount among the faculties conversant with the fine arts proportion and congruity the requisite knowledge being supposed are subjects upon which taste may be trusted it is competent to this office for in its intercourse with these the mind is passive and is affected painfully or pleasurably as by an instinct but the profound and the exquisite in feeling the lofty and universal in thought and imagination or in ordinary language the pathetic and the sublime are neither of them accurately speaking objects of a faculty which could ever without sinking in the spirit of nations have been designated by the metaphor taste and why because without the exertion of a cooperating power in the mind of the reader there can be no adequate sympathy with either of these emotions without this auxiliary impulse elevated or profound passion cannot exist passion it must be observed is derived from a word which signifies suffering but the connection which suffering has with effort with exertion and action is immediate and inseparable how strikingly is this property of human nature exhibited by the fact that in popular language to be in a passion is to be angry but anger in hasty words or blows itself discharges on its foes to be moved then by a passion is to be excited often to external and always to internal effort whether for the continuance and strengthening of the passion or for its suppression accordingly as the course which it takes may be painful or pleasurable if the latter the soul must contribute to its support or it never becomes vivid 
and soon languishes and dies. And this brings us to the point. If every great poet with whose writings men are familiar, in the highest exercise of his genius, before he can be thoroughly enjoyed, has to call forth and to communicate power, this service, in a still greater degree, falls upon an original writer, at his first appearance in the world. Of genius the only proof is, the act of doing well what is worthy to be done, and what was never done before. Of genius, in the fine arts, the only infallible sign is the widening the sphere of human sensibility, for the delight, honour, and benefit of human nature. Genius is the introduction of a new element into the intellectual universe, or, if that be not allowed, it is the application of powers to objects on which they had not before been exercised, or the enjoyment of them in such a manner as to produce effects hitherto unknown. What is all this but an advance, or a conquest, made by the soul of the poet? Is it to be supposed that the reader can make progress of this kind, like an Indian prince or general, stretched on his palanquin and borne by his slaves? No, he is invigorated and inspirited by his leader, in order that he may exert himself. For he cannot proceed in quiescence, he cannot be carried like a dead weight. Therefore to create taste is to call forth and bestow power, of which knowledge is the effect. And there lies the true difficulty." As the pathetic participates of an animal sensation, it might seem, that, if the springs of this emotion were genuine, all men, possessed of competent knowledge of the facts and circumstances, would be instantaneously affected. And doubtless, in the works of every true poet will be found passages of that species of excellence which is proved by effects immediate and universal. But there are emotions of the pathetic that are simple and direct, and others that are complex and revolutionary, some to which the heart yields with gentleness, others against which it struggles with pride. These varieties are infinite as the combinations of circumstance and the constitutions of character. Remember also that the medium through which, in poetry, the heart is to be affected, is language, a thing subject to endless fluctuations and arbitrary associations. The genius of the poet melts these down for his purpose, but they retain their shape and quality to him who is not capable of exerting, within his own mind, a corresponding energy. There is also a meditative as well as a human pathos, an enthusiastic as well as an ordinary sorrow, a sadness that has its seat in the depths of reason, to which the mind cannot sink gently of itself but to which it must descend by treading the steps of thought. And for the sublime, if we consider what are the cares that occupy the passing day, and how remote is the practice and the course of life from the sources of sublimity in the soul of man, can it be wondered that there is little existing preparation for a poet charged with a new mission to extend its kingdom, and to augment and spread its enjoyments? Away, then, with the senseless iteration of the word popular, applied to new works in poetry, as if there were no test of excellence in this first of the fine arts, but that all men should run after its productions, as if urged by an appetite or constrained by a spell. The qualities of writing best fitted for eager reception are either such as startle the world into attention by their audacity and extravagance, 
or they are chiefly of the superficial kind, lying upon the surfaces of manners, or arising out of a selection and arrangement of incidents, by which the mind is kept upon the stretch of curiosity, and the fancy assumed without the trouble of thought. But in everything which is to send the soul into herself, to be admonished of her weakness, or to be made conscious of her power, wherever life and nature are described as operated upon by the creative or abstracting virtue of the imagination, wherever the instinctive wisdom of antiquity and her heroic passions uniting, in the heart of the poet, with the meditative wisdom of later ages, have produced that accord of sublimated humanity, which is at once a history of the remote past and a prophetic enunciation of the remotest future, there the poet must reconcile himself for a season to few and scattered hearers. Grand thoughts, and Shakespeare must often have sighed over this truth, as they are most naturally and most fitly conceived in solitude, so can they not be brought forth in the midst of plaudits without some violation of their sanctity. Go to a silent exhibition of the productions of the sister art, and be convinced that the qualities which dazzle at first sight, and kindle the admiration of the multitude, are essentially different from those by which permanent influence is secured. Let us not shrink from following up these principles as far as they will carry us, and conclude with observing, that there never has been a period, and perhaps never will be, in which vicious poetry, of some kind or other, has not excited more zealous admiration, and been far more generally read, than good. But this advantage attends the good, that the individual, as well as the species, survives from age to age. Whereas, of the depraved, though the species be immortal, the individual quickly perishes." the object of present admiration vanishes, being supplanted by some other as easily produced, which, though no better, brings with it at least the irritation of novelty, with adaption more or less skilful to the changing humours of the majority of those who are most at leisure to regard poetical works when they first solicit their attention. Is it the result of the whole, that, in the opinion of the writer, the judgment of the people is not to be respected? The thought is most injurious, and, could the charge be brought against him, he would repel it with indignation. The people have already been justified, and their eulogium pronounced by implication, when it is said, above, that of good poetry, the individual as well as the species survives." and how does it survive but through the people? What preserves it but their intellect and their wisdom? Past and future are the wings on whose support, harmoniously conjoined, moves the great spirit of human knowledge. M.S. The voice that issues from this spirit is that vox populi which the deity inspires. Foolish must be he who can mistake for this a local acclamation, or a transitory outcry, transitory though it be for years, local though from a nation. Still more lamentable is his error who can believe that there is anything of divine infallibility in the clamour of that small though loud portion of the community, ever governed by factitious influence, which, under the name of the public, passes itself upon the unthinking for the people. Towards the public the writer hopes that he feels as much deference as it is entitled to. 
but to the people, philosophically characterized, and to the embodied spirit of their knowledge, so far as it exists and moves, at the present, faithfully supported by its two wings, the past and the future, his devout respect, his reverence, is due. He offers it willingly and readily, and, this done, takes leave of his readers, by assuring them, that, if he were not persuaded that the contents of these volumes, and the work to which they are subsidiary, evince something of the vision and the faculty divine, and that, both in words and things, they will operate in their degree to extend the domain of sensibility for the delight, the honour, and the benefit of human nature, notwithstanding the many happy hours which he has employed in their composition, and the manifold comforts and enjoyments they have procured to him, he would not, if a wish could do it, save them from immediate destruction, from being at this moment to the world as a thing that had never been. End of section 30